jump over to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. We'll read 24 through 27, and then we'll read over in John 13, verses 12 through 20 as well. Luke chapter 22, verses 24 through 27. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded to be greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. But it is not this way with you. But the one who is the greatest among you must become like the youngest, and the leader like the servant. He who is greater, the one who reclines, who, for who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves, is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. John 13, verses 12 through 20. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, again he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and the teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I do not speak of all of you. I know the ones I have chosen. But it is that the Scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats my bread has lifted up his heel against me. From now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the ongoing ministry of your word. We're thankful that it doesn't depend upon a Sunday morning either. As one of your children, we have the blessed joy of reading and studying your word every day. But we do thank you for the ability to assemble together, to meet corporately, to see the relative uh, giftings you've given to each one of us and to be able to communicate love and encouragement and exhortation and challenge and rebuke to one another. Thank you that you give us those gifts to be used in community. And we thank you for this time in which we'll sit and listen to you. Please change our hearts, change our minds, change our wills. Bring us more and more into the image of your Son, we pray in his name. Amen. You can be seated. Have you ever seen an act of true greatness? I mean, a truly masterful exhibition of some ability, some strategy, some power, some talent. Where as you watched it or as you read about it, you were just left shocked, maybe breathless. The dictionary defines greatness as something that is wonderful, first-rate, or remarkable in degree, magnitude, or effectiveness. The word is often used to describe that which excels, or that which rules preeminently over others. The word at least is used comparatively, in which one person or one thing is seen as clearly better than another person. 
or another thing. Well, much blood has been spilt over the centuries and the bickering of nations competing for greatness. Those who have arisen victorious from the strife are often depicted as truly great. We remember some historical figures as great due to militaristic power, like the Greek king Alexander the Great, or the Anglo-Saxon king, King Alfred the Great, or the Russian king, Peter the Great. The Latin term magnus, meaning great, was used in reference not only to certain warriors within Rome and Roman history, but the word is then co-opted by even other countries. So there's several Scandinavian countries that use that word magnus to talk about their rulers as being great. Even the Roman Catholic Church in the Middle Ages started naming some of their rulers in these ways, using the term either great or magnus to describe them. But you don't even have to have great in your name in order for the concept to be applied to you. Winston Churchill, for example, is considered one of the greatest leaders of all time for his resolve during the events leading up to and through World War II. Here are just a few quotes which demonstrate his steadfastness during a tumultuous time when England needed strong leadership to withstand the threat of German invasion and world domination. By the way, these quotes also show just how well Winston Churchill was able to turn a phrase. The guy was eminently quotable as well. Here's just a few. He said, character may be manifested in the great moments, but it's made in the small ones. He said this too, success consists of going from failure to failure without loss of enthusiasm. He said this, you have enemies? Good. That means you've stood up for something sometime in your life. He said, an appeaser is one who feeds a crocodile, hoping it will eat him last. He said, we, the British, have not journeyed across the centuries across the oceans, across the mountains, across the prairies, because we're made of sugar candy. He said, never give in. Never, 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 never. In nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in. Except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force. Never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. You ask, what is our policy? I will say. It is to wage war by sea, land, and air with all our might and with all the strength that God can give us to wage war against a monstrous tyranny never surpassed in the dark, lamentable catalog of human crime. That is our policy. You ask, what is our aim? I can answer with one word, victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be, for without victory there is no survival. He also said, if you're going through hell, keep going. He also said, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and the oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. A man of conviction, a man of great courage, a man who is able to look at the overwhelming odds and still push his country forward. It's funny, in another place he said, 
The Americans always do the right thing after they've expended all the other alternatives. Winston Churchill was an amazing leader, considered by many still to this day as perhaps the greatest leader, certainly of the 20th century. But not all greatness has reference to war, does it? What of athletic prowess? One example this morning might suffice. We could give tons of them. But one that came to my mind is Usain Bolt from Jamaica. He shocked the world in 2008 by becoming the first man since the requirement of electronic timing devices to not only win gold in the 100 meters, the 200 meters, and the 4 by 100 relay with three of his teammates, but he set the world record in all three that, that year, 2008. He then shocked the world again in 2012 when he reduplicated that feat, winning three gold medals again in the 100, 200, and the 4 by 100 relay. He's the first man to win six Olympic gold medals in a track and field event. And he is the highest paid athlete ever in track and field. How about an example in greatness in uh, intelligence or scientific inquiry? Uh, How could I not speak of Albert Einstein, the German-born physicist? His greatness intellectually is so, so associated with greatness that genius and Einstein are synonymous terms. We even use the term comically towards one another. Yeah, Einstein, right? We use that often, even sarcastically, to refer to someone who seems to know all of that. Because his name becomes so synonymous with intelligence. He's best known for articulating the relationship between mass and energy in his famous theory of relativity equation, E equals mc squared. That equation is considered by many the most famous, the world's most famous equation. His letter to Franklin D. Roosevelt about the development of powerful bombs of a new type is what helped launch the Manhattan Project and the development of nuclear weapons during World War II. So all of these individuals, all of these men, would qualify under our typical idea and definition of greatness. But here's my question for us today. What really is greatness? What is true greatness? Where does it come from? Is greatness something that you're born with? Or is it something that you arrive at only through hard work and diligence? Does greatness require an opening in providence in order to be seen? Does there have to be some great conflict or great opportunity for greatness to be perceived? What's the distinguishing feature for setting someone up for greatness? And what do the truly great do with the greatness that they have? What does greatness do? That's an important question. What is greatness in action? Well, rather than survey a hundred more examples that we as humans might come up with, I want to stop all the horizontal glances and I want to take a consideration of what God's Word has to say on the matter. What does the Bible say about greatness? Last week we were brought into a touching moment between Jesus and his disciples. As everyone sat down and reclined at the table to celebrate the Passover in the upper room, Jesus gets up, he lays aside his cloak, he girds himself with a towel, he takes the garb of a servant, and then proceeds to wash his disciples' feet. Now remember, from a place of shock and ignorance, Peter objects and he says, you'll never, ever, ever do this to my feet, Lord. But then once he's told of its necessity by Jesus, in order for Peter to have any part with Jesus, 
Peter then tells Jesus, well, don't stop then with my feet, but wash my head and my hands as well. Jesus explains that the foot washing was sufficient because Peter was already cleansed. He had already been made clean. The washing that Jesus was doing on that occasion was symbolic of their need for Jesus to serve them and to cleanse them. But it was not in itself the means of their cleansing. His washing their feet didn't remove their sin, but they needed him to remove their sin. The action which seemed far too low for Jesus, their Lord, right? Lord, you won't do this for me. It seemed far too low for Jesus to go that far, but that was only the beginning. For Jesus wouldn't stop at the point of stooping down to wash and wipe his disciples' feet. His love and humility would extend all the way to death. To death on a cross. Jesus would endure all the hostility, all the betrayal, all the abandonment associated with dying in the place of sinners. Taking their sin upon himself and suffering as the sacrificial substitute under the wrath of God the Father. This, and only this, could buy a sinner's pardon. This, and only this, was the price of redemption. His disciples may not understand all of that right then. Jesus said, you don't understand it now. Later you will. You don't get it now, but you're going to get it later on. But how were they to interpret this shocking behavior from Jesus I mean, it was certainly useful as a signpost pointing them to their incessant need for Jesus to wash them clean. But could it also have other implications? Could it be useful in understanding their relationship to one another? Could it be useful to constituting, helping them understand what constitutes true greatness? And what does true greatness do? (laughs) What makes someone great? And what do the great do? Jesus' washing of his disciples' feet I think did furnish them, and this is what we looked at last time, a theological lesson, their absolute dependence upon him to serve them. For if Jesus hadn't come to serve them, there would be no hope for them. But it not only constituted that theological lesson for his disciples, one that sprang up because Peter objected, but there was another lesson Jesus had in store for them through this. There was a practical lesson he wanted them to catch one in which they would see His love and service, and from that, love and serve one another. In the sermon entitled, Greatness in Action, we're going to look here at John 13 and Luke 22 and ask God to open our eyes to see greatness as He sees it and as Jesus does it. But to appreciate greatness as Jesus exemplifies it, perhaps we first need to admit our typical perspective of greatness in this world. And so my two points this morning are, number one, greatness in a fallen world. And then after looking at greatness in a fallen world, we'll consider greatness in the kingdom of God. Let's first of all consider greatness in a fallen world. Such an interesting occasion that we come across here. I'm going to start in Luke 22 with you. Look at verse 24. And there arose also a dispute among them. There's a dispute among the disciples. We would say this way, the supper turns into a squabble. Only Luke speaks of this jockeying for position. Matthew, Mark, and John, none of them talk about this argument that's happening at the supper table. But Luke 
gives us information regarding it. This is where our harmony of the Gospels kind of sheds some further light on the reason for Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Jesus, as a master teacher here, is going to has multiple lessons to learn through his action of washing their feet, and it's aimed directly at something that the disciples need to listen to and be impacted by. Jesus had promised his disciples in Matthew 19:28 that when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit judging the twelve tribes of Israel. He says, one day there's going to be a judgment on the twelve tribes of Israel, and you who have followed me will sit alongside of me in that judgment. Perhaps the events of recent days, the triumphal entry, the people, the populace putting down palm branches, everyone singing Hosanna, perhaps watching that, seeing Jesus teaching now in the temple complex, clearing out the temple of all of the money changers, the acts of authority he's taking. Perhaps the disciples at this point are like, man, you know, we're coming to a climactic moment. And now they're here celebrating the Passover feast a remembrance of God's deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. And I bet all of those thoughts, those messianic expectations are brimming in their minds. And so what do they do while they're sitting at the Passover feast? They start jockeying for position. They start arguing with one another. Perhaps they believe that the positions each of them had at this feast would maybe be even indicative of where they would be situated in the coming kingdom. Perhaps they had grumbled about where they were sitting even at the table. We already know that they had sought for the positions on Jesus' right and left hand. We had this read this morning in Matthew 20. Even a mom gets involved in it, right? As she petitions to Jesus, let my sons be sitting on your right and left. And Jesus says, those aren't for me to give, but they are for those whom the Father has appointed those seats to be given. Remember, the rest of the disciples get indignant when they hear this, right? So, this mom is going to try to come in here and tell her son should be sitting next to you? No, we want those positions. This has been a long time brewing among the disciples. But can you imagine the scene? It's kind of like a coach coming into a locker room to rally his players right before the Super Bowl. And to find them as he comes in to give them some parting words before they're about to be sent out onto the field. To find them arguing with one another about whose stats for that season were better. Who should be voted MVP for the season. Arguing about who has made the most vital contributions to the team. How do you think the coach would handle such a scene? Or it's like a general approaching his troops on the eve of battle, to find them arguing about who's the best shot, or who's the most courageous, or who desires, uh, or who, you know, should be given the most medals, and who's rightly suited for a higher position within the military. This is the eve of Jesus' meeting with death. Here before him are the men that he has invested so much in. The Great Commission would proceed through these men, one of which... He has already identified and will identify again and will do it again, is a traitor. Another of which will verbally, vocally deny him three times. And no matter what, they're all involved in bickering on the eve of this meeting with death. How could it be that at a time when morale needed to be the highest 
and the purpose and focus of the disciples mostly fine, most fine-tuned, that Jesus would find his closest followers bickering with one another and divided against each other. Well, here Jesus is the wisest teacher, knows how important the relationship that these men have with one another will be to the health and vitality of the church. And so he has some words for them. But the words proceed from action that he first did. He wants them to really understand what's at stake. And all of a sudden we see just how important the washing of the disciples' feet was on this occasion. What was the struggle all about? The struggle was about self-promotion. That's what the argument was about. They're trying to determine who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? The scene just seems so inappropriate to the occasion, especially with the benefit of the vantage point that we have now, as we look back and know the bigger picture. For one thing, none of us, including the disciples, are any all that great anyway. Our horizontal comparisons are futile and vain. You know, you say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm 0.1 seconds faster than you in the 100 meter dash. What, what, what does that even mean? What does it mean to brag about, oh, I got a 95 on that test and you only got a 92? For one thing, none of us are really all that great anyway. All those horizontal comparisons are ridiculous. Also, we know that everyone will be abandoning Jesus in just a few hours. How could any of these men propose that they're truly great when they flee the very moment of Jesus' battle with death and crucifixion? Even if it's only Judas who betrays him and Peter who verbally denies him, everyone abandons him. Everyone leaves him. And since Jesus will mention several times, one of them will betray them, and he's mentioned this several times, shouldn't they be gathering together all the more in a united front? Like, we're behind you, Jesus. Even if there's someone who's going to betray you, we're here for you. But instead, they're bickering about who's better, who's greater. But beyond all of that, their focus is just wrong altogether. They're intent on the wrong purpose. They're attempting to exalt themselves rather than Jesus. They needed a good dose of John the Baptist, right? I must decrease and he must increase. I'm sure they would look back on these moments and regret their thoughts and words. Here on the last night they would have with Jesus, right before his crucifixion, they're found bickering about who's the greatest. You ever had that hindsight 2020 moment? You're like, man, I was so obsessed about this, and there was a much bigger thing going on. How could I have been spending my thoughts and my attitude and my time thinking about that when this thing was going on? Their last night with Jesus. And Jesus, the one who was truly great, in the fullest sense of that term, truly awesome, And they're tied up in their own interests. But I wonder how much that can be said of us as well. How often have we wasted time that could be spent on the kingdom because we're disgruntled with one another? It's sad that we're still embattled in the same struggle, encumbered with that same struggle. Our own hearts vie for preeminence, and that can arise at the least expected times. At times, our desire for greatness and be considered greater than others makes a vocal expression. 
But it is far too often even just the secret desire of our hearts, which we struggle against. We want people to think that we're great, to think that we're valuable, to admire us for our abilities, for our power, for our achievements. We crave popularity and honor and prestige. Why is it so hard for people to find genuine joy in the promotion of others? Why is it that we struggle with honor being awarded to someone else? Often it's because of our pride and arrogance. Our envy and jealousy comes out of our pride and arrogance because we think that we're better suited for that promotion. We think we should have gotten the raise that so-and-so got. We believe we should have been awarded the whatever award that was given. Much of it arises from an inflated self-appraisal, believing that we're more deserving of the blessings that others receive. We can fall into those patterns of thought. And that sort of divisiveness is cancerous to the church. Our love for one another needs to be nurtured and developed with every passing day. We have to ask the Lord to root that out from us, you know, from its very root in our hearts. We need to learn how to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep, to esteem others as more important or as better than ourselves. We need to look out for the interests of others. He recognized that there is an enemy of men's souls that is crawling around like a lion seeking someone to devour. Instead of bickering with one another, we need to stand firm shoulder to shoulder with one another in God's grace and by God's strength. Forming kind of like a Roman phalanx, you know, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield. That's the sort of relationships we should have with one another. But when we're bickering with one another, then the whole line in formation breaks apart. You see, we have no problem identifying with these men because we see the same sinful tendencies in ourselves. But the good thing is, we had the same Savior that they had too. We had the same Savior. We had the same Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And just as Jesus had grace for them, so Jesus has grace for us. You see, much of the problem lies in a faulty definition of greatness. What does it mean to be great? Jesus describes a generalization regarding greatness in Luke 22, verse 25. The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. Jesus admits that this is how the Gentiles think of greatness. Those who are great exercise great authority. They have power. Kings and lords lord their authority over, over others. They pride themselves in their power. This is the same today. Even in democratic societies where we don't have, quote, quote, a king, we don't exist in a, quote, quote, monarchy, the greatest people, by the world's definition, are those who exercise the most influence and power over other people's lives. To be truly great, you have to exercise influence and power over other people. This is the world's definition of greatness. The great exercise authority. They lord that authority over others. But not only that, but the world also say that the great distribute power. So they exercise authority and they are the distributors of goods and power. Why? Because they not only want to be thought of as great, but they want to be thought of as good. 
And if they have all the stuff and they get to distribute the stuff, then everybody thinks, oh, look at what a beneficent person this is. He says here, they like to be thought of as benefactors, people who do good and give good things to others. In other words, greatness in the world is tied up in influence and notoriety. It's seen in power and popularity. That's how the world sees greatness. I say, who is truly great? That's where our minds, by a world's definition, will go. We'll think of those who exercise the greatest amount of power and have the most amount of influence. But is that what greatness really is? Is that the Lord's definition of greatness? Well, it brings us to our second point this morning. What is greatness in the kingdom of God? What is greatness in the kingdom of God? Look at verses 26 and 27. Jesus says, but it is not this way with you. He says this literally in Greek. With you, not so. With you, not so. He says, I want to flip that whole definition upside down. Our culture is slightly different than the culture of Jesus' day in several ways. There's things that are the same and there are things that are different. But certainly something that's a little bit different in our day, sadly, is that there's little respect given to those who are up there in years. But in that culture, the older you were, the more respect you were given and the more authority you had and the better positions you had in discussions and seatings and all the rest. There was a certain amount of dignity and honor that was awarded to a person just because they were older. So this is what makes Jesus' next statement so interesting. He says, not so with you. He says, the greater, the person who is greater should become as the youngest. Literally in Greek, the youngest, the newest. You should be as if you were the youngest in the group. Now remember, today, since we still pride ourselves in youth and vitality, that doesn't seem to communicate as well. But in that culture, to say, to take one of the ones that's the most distinguished and the most dignified and to say he should take the position of the youngest in the group? What? Like flipping the whole thing upside down. Jesus says the one who is truly great has a willingness to humble himself and allow others the better spot. J.C. Ryle said it this way, usefulness in the world and church, a humble readiness to do anything, to put our hands to any great work, a cheerful willingness to fill any post, however lowly, and discharge any office, however unpleasant. If we can only promote happiness and holiness on earth, these are the true tests of Christian greatness. In other words, to do the difficult jobs, the ones that no one else wants to do, letting others go first, offering others the better place, looking out for other people's interests, seeking the happiness of others and not our own. How often is that our struggle? We're seeking our own happiness rather than the joy of others. Jesus says that you who are truly great are the ones who take the position of the youngest. And not only that, but those who lead then show that leadership in service. The one leading should be serving, Jesus says. Daryl Box says it this way. Leaders are not to be something they are not, but to lead without the pretense of being more than they are. As leaders, the apostles are not to exploit their age or position, but continue to serve. The commitment is not to power, 
but service. The commitment is not to separate from those who are ruled, but to identify with them. Oh, didn't Jesus set this example for us? You see, service flows from loving one's neighbor. It makes me think of the parable of the Good Samaritan, which we also had read this morning. An interesting setup for that parable. Man asks Jesus, there's a discussion about what's the, what are the commandments, and you know, ultimately it's to love God and to love your neighbor as yourself, and Jesus is like, yes, go do this. <laughs> and the man, we're told, seeking to justify himself said, and who's my neighbor? He's trying to kind of slim down the number of people he has to show love and mercy to. You know? He's like, okay, I, I can handle that, but let's identify who the people I have to really do this for are. And so Jesus doesn't answer that directly, but answers it through use of a parable. The parable of the Good Samaritan. And as many of you are aware, what's so astounding about the parable is the man who would have been the most hated within Jewish circles is the hero of the tale. Why? Samaritans were half-breeds, according to Jewish cultural snobbishness. And so as a result, they had nothing to do with Samaritans. We have no idea the identity of the man who was beaten up and left for dead on the side of the road. All that we do know is that a priest and Levite go by on the other side without helping him at all. But meanwhile, this Samaritan comes and picks him up, takes care of his wounds, brings him to a hotel and sets him in and even pays for his stay and says, if there's anything else, I'll pay for that as well on my return back here. Jesus then asks, who's the one who showed mercy? He said, well was obviously the Samaritan, the one who did these things for the man. Jesus says, go and do likewise. Can you imagine that? Go and do like the Samaritan. Be a Samaritan, Jesus says. Now, we hear that today and we think, oh, that's a wonderful, wonderful, nice little thing. Yeah, you're a good Samaritan. In that culture, what? That's almost a contradiction of terms. Good Samaritan? There is no such thing. This is what true greatness looks like. Jesus asks the question, who is greater? Is it the one who reclines at the table or one who serves the person reclining? The obvious is answer in that culture. Obvious, I'm sorry, the answer is obvious in that culture. It's obviously the one who's reclining at the table. He's the greater one. The person who's serving him is the lesser one. And then Jesus says, yet I wasn't the one who reclined. I'm in your midst, the one serving. This is an interesting statement in Luke, because in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is no reference to Jesus washing the disciples' feet. So had we not had what we read in John 13, it would still be true. Jesus' whole ministry was about serving his disciples, even to death, right? He came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that was all his life. So that could be generally true. He can say, hey, I have been the one serving you guys. The obvious implication is I'm greater than you guys, and yet I'm the one serving you guys. But with our understanding of what's going on in John 13, I think quite possibly what Jesus is saying here is, I'm the one who is just washing all of your feet. You're here bickering with one another about who's the greatest. Meanwhile, I, who you refer to as teacher and Lord, am serving you. So think about that for a moment. Is it really true that the greater one is the one who reclines at the table? If he is, if I'm the greater one and I'm serving, what does that do to your definitions of greatness? 
You know, something about Jesus' action before this that just crystallizes the whole scene. He could have said it and it would have been just as true. But his actions perfectly demonstrate what he's trying to communicate. Jesus sets an example. He not only gives the exhortation here, but he sets the example. And again, I want to turn then back over to John 13 to take a look at it. Jesus' position was that of the greatest. He said here in verse 13, You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. For I am. That statement happens several times in the Gospel. I am, I am, I am. He says, you've rightly spoken when you call me teacher and Lord. I am. You see, Jesus is the greatest one of all. Jesus is the infinitely superior person. He's the one who ought to be reclining at the table and being served by all the disciples. But the picture is completely flipped on its head. Jesus is among his disciples as one who serves. But the slave isn't greater than his Lord. Nor is an apostle greater than the one sending him. The apostle is just one sent. The one sent isn't greater than the one who did the sending. The slave isn't greater than his master. That's obvious from every level, cultural, economic, social practice. The servant would never assume a higher spot than his master. So what Jesus is saying is, you call me master, but what do I do? I serve. So what's your position? If you would never take a position higher than your master and you see what your master is doing, what are you going to be doing? Jesus says, I set an example for you. I'm one who serves. I washed your feet. I, your Lord, your teacher, I washed your feet. He says, so also you ought to wash one another's feet. This is an example that you would do so also. Now, while it is true that we can literally wash one another's feet, Jesus' point is to set an example of service for his followers. Example. Example of that example. Um, Jesus gives us, you know, a lot of people refer to it as the Lord's Prayer. I like to refer to it as the model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, pray then in this way. Now, is there anything wrong with literally praying those words? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Is there anything wrong with saying those words? Absolutely not. There's nothing wrong with saying those words. There's nothing wrong with praying those words. Like if you pray any part of Scripture and it would be appropriate, right? So there's nothing wrong with praying those words. However, there's something wrong if you think you're heard on the basis of saying that magical mantra. If I just repeat these words, that that's going to somehow do something for me. Jesus says, pray in this manner. Pray like this. Learn from this example. Elements within this prayer should also find expression in our prayers. And it's a good corrective, because when we start to get into our laundry list sort of praying, (laughs) it gets us out of that, right? There should be adoration. There should be thanksgiving. Yes, there's supplication. But there should be also forgiving of others and appreciation for the forgiveness we've been given. You see, the model prayer gives us an example. It It sets a pattern for us. Similarly, Jesus is saying here, I have set a pattern for you. Certainly, you can literally wash one another's feet. But it is possible, just like someone can recite the Lord's Prayer and not mean it, someone can wash someone's feet and not mean it. It means nothing. Calvin picks up on this in his own day. And he bemoans the situation that's going on in the Roman Catholic Church. He says this, Every year the Papists, referring to the Pope and 
all the leaders of the Roman Catholic Church, have a fashion of washing some people's feet as if it were a farce where they were playing on the stage. And so, when they have perfumed this idle and unmeaning ceremony, they think that they've fully discharged their duty and reckon themselves at liberty to despise their brethren during the rest of the year. They go through this grandiose ceremony of washing some people's feet, and then the rest of the year they hate Christians. They put them to death. They persecute them. They tell them lies. He says, what, what is far worse, after having washed the feet of twelve men, they subject every member of Christ to cruel torture, and they thus spit in Christ's face. This display of buffoonery, therefore, is nothing else than a shameful mockery of Christ. What is this? Jesus' point is to get to our hearts. Not to just give us an outward expression. There's nothing wrong with washing someone's feet. But if it is not accompanied by humility and love and service, then you haven't gotten the point. Let me put it another way. If you wash someone's feet, but you won't help them when they're in need, have you really caught the gist of what Jesus is trying to say? If they're in trouble and you don't want to dirty your clothes to help them, you haven't caught what Jesus is saying. Matthew Henry offers a threefold example of what Christ is doing here. He says there's at least three things. Number one, he sets an example of humble graciousness. There should be a deep humility in us towards one another. He sets the example of humble graciousness, giving humbly. Secondly, he says he sets the example that we should have a gracious desire to be serviceable. We should be looking for opportunities to serve one another. We should have ears that are attuned to that. You know, listening within the community, looking for ways to serve and help one another. I want to challenge all of us. I'm certain, most many of you do, I'm sure, but let me challenge you. When we come together and gather in moments like this, like on a Sunday morning, in our conversation with one another, we should be listening for ways in which we can serve each other. Oh, that's going on in your life. And you start, start thinking, brainstorming, what can I do to help them in reference to that? Is there some way I can encourage them? Maybe I need to write them a note this week. Or maybe I need to come by and ask if I can watch the kids for a day. Or maybe I need to go and help and get some groceries or make them a meal. Or maybe there's some, we need to start thinking in those categories. And I know many of us do, but we always need to be challenged with that. That sort of attitude, that gracious desire to be serviceable, a longing to work for the good of others. The third thing he says is a serviceableness to the sanctification of one another. In other words, he says also pictured in washing of one another's feet is that we would sanctify one another. So sometimes that service comes in practical means. Sometimes it comes in in more directly spiritual means, like confronting a brother or sister who's in an unrepentant sin and telling them, I love you and I want to walk through this with you. We need to bring this before the Lord. We need to ask him for the gift of repentance. And for cleansing. We should be attempting to purify one another through our interactions with one another. Just as a husband is told to wash his wife with the water of the word, so we should wash one another with the water of the word. Allowing the Holy Spirit to work through God's word to impact one another. Yes, sharpening one another, but also comforting one another. Helping one another. Encouraging one another. Rebuking one another when it's appropriate. 
You see, the point is this. If Jesus has taken the servant's place and he's their master, what ought they do for one another? If he who was and is their Lord and who is the greatest would act in this way, what ought they do in their actions who are at best servants? He says, don't be like the Gentiles who are motivated by selfishness. Instead, be like me, motivated, motivated by selflessness. I had Steve send out an email this weekend regarding my mom, who's been really sick for the past week, and we're praying for her recovery. But I couldn't help but think about her as I was preparing the sermon. And since she's not here this morning due to illness... I knew I wouldn't embarrass her by talking about her. I see the pattern of Christ being worked out upon the canvas of my mom's life. She's always so willing to do any job. And it doesn't matter how small, and it doesn't matter how insignificant it might be to anyone else. When she comes over to babysit our kids, we come home to a house that's also been cleaned. To the point of scrubbing out our microwave and cleaning off the little grunge that's underneath the stove top, you know, that stuff you can never get off. She gets it off, you know. After the kids are down, anyone else would be like, it's time to relax. She's working through the entire house, cleaning everything. We were already blessed that she would just come and watch the kids, but then above and beyond. When she works with children on Sunday morning, she comes prepared with her own lessons, crafted from ideas she's been contemplating through that week. When Valentine's Day comes around, she doesn't wallow in the fact that her husband left her after 20 years of marriage but instead looks for a way to benefit the couples in our church. Instead of wallowing in mire and thinking about the sadness and depression that could fit anyone in that situation, she's looking for a way to serve others and to strengthen marriages that still are together by God's grace. She manifests such a consistency and a desire to go above and beyond expectations because it's just the way she loves. You couldn't, you couldn't stop her if you wanted to. Many times, like, Mom, you don't have to go to that level. I know many of you probably thought the same thing. You don't have to do all this stuff. But you can't stop her. Because that's how she loves. She loves in an overflowing way, over the top, above and beyond, selfless, dedicated, faithful, never giving up love. And when I see that, I see Jesus. Because that's how Jesus loves us. I have the blessing of serving in a church in which my mom is not the only one, in which I see that sort of sacrificial service. And how thankful I am to serve in a place where there are people who desire to love one another with that sort of love. Putting the interests of others before themselves. Looking for ways, little ways, ways that no one else will ever possibly ever know. Little ways to encourage each other and love one another. Just because that's what love does. Jesus gives an encouragement and warning. He says, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Blessed are you if you do them. Blessedness and happiness comes from those who obey. If we would really be happy, we must think more of others and less of ourselves. I can't say this any more strong than just to repeat that again. If you want to be happy, stop thinking about yourself. Think about the Lord and think about others. It's amazing how much your problems don't seem so big anymore when you take your Focus off of yourself and your problems and you start looking to the solver of all problems, the Lord Jesus Christ, and you look for ways to help with other people's problems. You no longer think about your own problems. Depression is, is nicked in the bud when we 
Once we start to show love and appreciation for other people, we care about their problems, we look for ways to be problem solvers in the life of others. But Jesus says, you have to do it. You see, knowledge is of little to no profit if it's not followed by doing. I, I know I myself um, have to repent often of this problem of knowing many things and yet doing little. I so pray that I wouldn't be a person who knows much but does little. I'd much rather be someone who does as much as I know and continues to strive towards knowing more. It's not a knock against growing in knowledge, but making sure that knowledge is put into action to know what we ought to be, to be, to know what we ought to believe, but then yet to be unaffected by that knowledge only adds to our guilt before God. James 4.17 says, Therefore, to one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. So if you know what you ought to do, do it. I'm reminded of the story of D.L. Moody, who once spoke with a woman who didn't like his method of evangelism. He said, I don't really like mine all that much either. What's yours? She replied, I don't have one. Moody said, I like mine better than yours. <laughs> you see, precepts and patterns must be put into practice. doesn't mean that we have, don't have any areas to correct. We do. Our theology is always being changed and transformed. I hope that ten years from now I'll look back on this moment and go, man, you know, man... <laughs> I really need to do a lot of growing. I mean, I hope that's how we are. I hope we're always growing in what we know of the Lord and His Word. But may we not be found just amassing head knowledge and not loving one another practically. Jesus says, I know this doesn't include all of you. I know whom I've chosen. I know, meanwhile, that there is one here eating my bread who has lifted his heel against me. He's quoting from Psalm 41 here. It doesn't seem that the entire psalm is messianic in flavor, but he's picking up on an idea that happened in David's life. David, who's a type of Christ, experienced betrayal by those close to him. And Jesus says, just as David experienced that, so I am. Jesus, David's greater son, is experiencing betrayal by one of his close uh, men, one of the disciples. Perhaps Jesus includes that here as a reminder that not everyone will respond well to your service. Not everyone will respond well to the service that you do. We can, if that happened to Jesus, we can expect the same to happen to us. But does that mean that your service, when done in love for God's glory, is wasted? If a close friend that you spent many, many years investing in betrays you, turns his back on you, goes against you, does that mean that those years were wasted? Was Jesus' act, even on this night, washing their feet, washing Judas's feet, was that a wasted act of love? Jesus knew what Judas' intentions were, but that didn't stop him from showing love and kindness. So we must show a similar kindness and humility to those around us, whether they receive it or not, whether they betray us or not. For when we do that, we identify with our Lord and Savior who is willing to suffer for us. Jesus says, I tell you all this in advance so that when it comes to pass, you will know that I am. There it is again. You will know I am. 
Jesus makes this prophetic announcement. Again, a reminder that there's one among you that's going to betray me. And he says that when it happens, you'll know that I am. You'll know that all of this was going according to plan. It's as if Jesus is saying, don't be shaken by what's about to happen. Don't think that I've been outsmarted by Judas's duplicity. I saw it coming. I knew it was coming. It was prophesied to come. This wasn't a surprise. I'm not going to be shocked when Judas kisses me on the cheek and betrays me to the Roman cohort. Jesus is saying, God the Father's plan is never thwarted. Even when it seems that the enemy of men's souls is winning and accomplishing his nefarious plots, even when things get tough, even when it seems like everything's against you, God is winning. He is accomplishing His good purposes. All evil plots are overruled by an all-good, great, gracious, glorious God who works all things together for, for good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And Jesus says at the end of this, And the one who receives the ones I send receive Me. And those who receive Me receive My Father. The one sending Jesus. Like Jesus is saying to His men, Listen, I might be betrayed, and the world might continue to reject Me, but take heart. The plan is still unfolding, and nothing will stop the spread of My kingdom. Even the gates of Hades will not prevail against the church. And while the watching world may reject you, know this, Those who receive you, receive you as one sent by Jesus. And if they receive Jesus, they receive the Father as well. You're making an eternal impact and significance on others' lives. And He'll be pleased. And there's no greater thing than to please Him. So what is true greatness? What does it look like when in action? Not many people... You know, a small church like this, a few people know my mom. Not many people will know her. But I believe the way she lives her life is truly great. Not because there's something great in her, save Jesus. Jesus is in her, and that's what makes the difference. True greatness, what does it look like when it's in action? It's not found in titles. It's not found in ranks or honors or economic achievements. It's not found in natural birthrights or human insights or awards or feats of power and prestige. Instead, greatness in action displays kindness and tenderness and thoughtfulness and humility. True greatness, here's a few things to think about, takes the lowest place, shows compassion to the hurting, encourages the hopeless, strengthens the weak, looks out for the least, Lends a hand to the helpless, defends the defenseless, loves the loveless, heals the hurting, forgives the offending, endures hardship, suffers to relieve the pain of others, befriends the friendless, cares for the brokenhearted, and ministers to those in misery. The truly great person is one who serves. And as Riken says, the point is not that service will get us to greatness, but that service is greatness. Faithful service in the lowliest place is true greatness. 
Greatness is seen in the ease and readiness to complete the seemingly most insignificant, unnoticed, unapplauded tasks. The things which others feel themselves above doing. Small, messy tasks which no one knows about. Things like washing feet. But demonstrates the love of God when it's done for His glory. Does your life demonstrate that? Does it demonstrate that you follow Jesus? who, as the greatest, willingly laid down everything that you might be saved? Do you realize that his condescension, just in the incarnation alone, should have been enough to talk about humility as seen in greatness? But that, for him, was not enough. His endurance with sinners and rebels should have been enough. But he went further. His patience with adversaries should have been enough. But he went further. The washing of his disciples' feet should have been enough. But it wasn't enough for Jesus, for he humbled himself all the way to death, death on a cross. This is how low Jesus would go to save us and to demonstrate the Father's love for us. Have you been forever changed by that love? Do people get a glimpse of true greatness when they interact with you? Does your life cause them to question, how do I define greatness? What truly is greatness? Does your life follow the pattern that Jesus set? Is it obvious by the way that you live that it's really Jesus living in you? For my dear friends, it's only in Jesus that we can experience true greatness in action. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your great love seen in the sending of your Son, the giving up of Him unto death, that our sins might be forgiven. Jesus, thank you for the numerous ways in which you showed, displayed your humility. From the incarnation to your earthly ministry to your death and burial. But Jesus, thank you that the story doesn't end there as you rose again victorious from the grave. Lord, I pray that our lives would have that same attitude that is in Christ Jesus. That you would remind us and teach us what true greatness is. And that our lives would cause others to question their definition of the term. And ultimately, point them to Jesus, who is truly great. We pray in His great name. Amen.